0: hello and welcome to this week's episode of inside the gm studio a podcast all about the tabletop rpg hobby mostly centered for the game masters but all you fuckers out there that like to roll the dice around while the gm does all the work we love you too i'm your host matt i am david and uh david guess what what's that so i have been off of our Ghost Mountain game for a couple of weeks, and we came back strong on Thursday, and we play went all, right back in. <laughs> it was fucking. We went in headstrong, and it was awesome. And then it finally happened. What? Happened? We had a TPK.
1: Success! Success! We've done it! We've done it!
0: It's the first TPK I've had in a very long time. I'm really proud of you. Really, very proud of you. Oh, man. Hold on. Let me get my whiskey here. Word. So, and uh, the players, they were, when it happened, they were like, whoa, we fucked up. Uh, Because they knew what they were going into, I had an NPC that was telling them like, hey, where you're going, there's this outlaw gang that is said to be out there. uh, And there's this thing, so there's, uh, it's kind of like a race, it's called a morto, where you're undead pretty much. Mm -hmm. And I told him it was a morto gang, they only really care about mortos, and we had a morto in the group. So he was like, maybe you'd be able to talk him down. And when they showed up, there was six of them against the three of them. And in ICRPG, a lot of damage can be dealt really quickly. Mm. And it started going down and everybody was getting fucking nailed. And even in in the middle of the fight, I had some of the players that were just like, maybe we should have tried to talk him down about this. (laughs) And he was like, fuck that. We can do this. We can make this happen. Uh, and i was like you guys did shoot first they were trying to talk to you about just trying to take your shit and you can move on ahead but then you had to pull out a gun and fire and <laughs> they were just like yep we fucked up but it's, i had to say i haven't had an actual tpk in years really it's been about four years now since i've had a tpk
1: wow i've had like four in the last like two years <laughs> um the response seems to be a good one, which you you always want the players to go, ah, oh, we fucked up. Not, man, you're mean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, right. You mean, GM. <laughs> like, <laughs> it wasn't my fault. Like, yeah, I didn't, I just, I let you die. I didn't make you die. But yeah, that's, uh, it, it, isn't it impressive how much, as a general rule, players have kind of a button And like a little bit of a leash, like you want to cross our bridge, you're going to have to pay a toll. And the the players are generally like, okay, look, I'm not above having to like pay a toll. Everybody else probably has to pay a toll. These guys are clearly assholes. But hey, what do I care? I have a lot of gold. And so you go like, okay, well, what's the toll? And they're like, well, how much you got on you? And you're like, well, that's not reasonable. The toll should be set, right? It should just be a set amount and it should be a reasonable amount. And then you go like, okay, like the players will not and no player I've ever had will ever put up with the general boilerplate stance of what a bandit would be, which is like, okay, you have a lot of shit. Like if you're like some peasant or whatever, I might take your cow and the 12 copper pieces you have and let you pass. But you have like, you know, hundreds of gold pieces and like horses and armor and shit like I'll just take most of that because I'm this isn't like a lawful like toll bridge or whatever we just decided it was ours and Mm -hmm. so the players will just go like no you're not having all my shit even though it's like well really what's the harm you just get more shit you're an adventurer right what do you care like it's gold like fuck it but they they just won't because it's really at that point not about the actual mechanics of it which is or i shouldn't say mechanics of it the actual um What's at stake, right? It becomes a philosophical mm. discourse. Like, oh well, I'm not going to let this guy fucking disrespect me. I'm a badass adventurer. I'm not, not going to put up with this. I'll just fuck him up. It's like, well, but sometimes maybe, uh, maybe you won't. <laughs>
0: maybe, yeah. Maybe sometimes. you're not going to do that. Maybe
1: they're going to fuck you up and you're going to die.
0: Sometimes when you're outnumbered, shit
1: doesn't go your way. Yeah. uh Action economy is a fucking bitch, isn't it? It's the reason that solo monsters in fifth edition kind of suck more than they used to. You ever notice that? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. if you have like, I mean, early levels, it's kind of fine um but if you're not you're just trying to put one tough monster at the party and you don't design the encounter in a way like the grick encounter that we had this week which i guess we'll we'll talk about Mm -hmm. the DD game in a minute but um is a good example of there was just one monster and it wasn't super tough but it was just the the party really couldn't get at it. Like they couldn't get at it and surround it. It was like maybe like one or two of you at a time. And it's well, that's kind of on purpose because in just like an open ground battle with like this monster that's made to be like a moderate challenge for four PCs for five PCs, it's like just especially people that know how to like maximize their action economy. It just fucking ends up being a big wet fart, and you're just not. It's like oh, you just you got to have more than enough monsters. So yeah.
0: Speaking of the D&D game, uh, one thing I wanted to bring up, so we went back to, so the session before last was very RP story. Nice, well done. Uh, Story RP heavy, uh, getting a little bit more information than anything else. Yeah, the one Uh, that I didn't think
1: went so well, yeah.
0: Yeah, where Friday uh, we had three encounters
1: Mm-hmm. I believe. Was it three? Grick, the weird depends bird creatures. You, depends on what you're counting as an encounter. I mean, the crab guy was an encounter. It wasn't a combat encounter, but it wasn't. Like, I'm talking
0: about combat encounters. Yeah. Oh,
1: combo. Uh, Gricks, oh, the ghost. Right. Grix, or Grick uh, at the entrance on the causeway. Then the harpies on the way in.
0: Oh, the harpies. I forgot
1: about those. Then the ghost. I think it was, it, uh-huh. it was three.
0: Um, Well, and then the weird bird creatures at the end there.
1: The two bird creatures. The the paratons, yeah. Yes, that's it. Four combat. So four.
0: Um, One thing that I saw come up that we, you know, we kind of get into every now and then, but it hasn't come up as much as it did on Friday, I think, because of space and move... Move moverability, maneuverability, maneuverability. Thank you. There you go. Uh, there was a lot of like enclosed spaces, and I think we played it out better than ever in the way that we got out of each other's way. I'm so used to other groups that I've had that just try to pile in wherever they can do fucking damage, Mm -hmm. uh, and then they don't move anywhere else. Uh, I think we did a pretty good job, but how did you feel about maneuvering? these small spaces with these, uh, with the enemies.
1: It made the encounters appropriately challenging because none of Mm. them were particularly deadly encounters. Uh, and the last encounter in the paratons on the roof was a pretty wide open, but there was just one funnel point. And Mike even alluded to it. Like he was typically as a barbarian, a dragonborn barbarian, kind of a striker tank hybrid, um, he's typically at the front line, but even he was like, oh, I'm going to move out here a little bit more to give the rest of the party's member like space yeah. to get out here. It was like, Oh, that's thoughtful of him, right? You can tell he's got a couple of years of gaming under his belt and is thinking about in those terms that combat encounter was made to be a little more, uh, although it was really wide open, um, they were aerial combatants. And so that, like allowed the party to spread out but also you know they could just kind of dive bomb down on you and i kind of fucked up there at the end it was like he like one of them dove down and attacked and then i was like okay his turn is over and i was like wait he, i didn't move him out of range and cody was like oh he he fly up and i was like i didn't say that he did so he's on the ground there and everyone just fucking wailed the shit out of him <laughs> killed it like really quick it's like okay well that was something but uh yeah i was i was kind of relying on the more or less cramped conditions making the encounters need to be a little more deliberate as to like who is doing what and then under Mm -hmm. what circumstances I could tell that they weren't none of the combat encounters probably to date in this campaign have really felt Whoa, shit we better be careful And and the how I know that is you're the litmus test for this if you really thought that the party was not going to be able to defeat the ghost you wouldn't have been like bouncing around just trying to like play keep away you'd have been like all right i'm keeping away yeah that's what i'm putting this shit away i'm gonna fucking get my daggers out i'm gonna fuck this shit up because otherwise we're gonna die um so and that's fine because we're not even to level four yet i i do want the stakes to kind of ramp up i i don't think you should be until you get to like a, a a some sort of culminus or terminus in the plot where things culminate, there shouldn't be a lot of encounters where the party feel like, okay, we need to, they should be challenging, but not. All right. We got to be doing everything right in the right order. And if we don't do things in the right order with the right maximizing, you know, each of my turns, mm-hmm. then we might die. And I, I, could tell. I can always tell when you're like, okay, I'm just going to go over here and like I'm going to use my dash and and I'm like, okay, are you? That's why I even asked you. I was like, are you? Can't you dodge as a bonus action? And you're like, oh no, I can't do that. And I was like, okay, because it wouldn't be it, it wouldn't be past you just to be like, nah, well, yeah, I can. I just I'm yeah. It. But it's like if, if you thought like, okay, fuck, this guy might kill me if I'm not dodging. Then you're like, fuck yeah, I'm going to dodge with my bonus action and do this. But <laughs> my dagger's out. Yeah. Move over here behind this position and like do all the things right. I'm trying to ease into some encounters like that because I don't know if the party is really prepared for it. Um, Cody's always prepared for that. And I Mm. would venture to guess you're probably prepared for it, but, um, you might not have to exercise that muscle, but I think Beto and Mike are not particularly accustomed to having to make the most out of like every action on every turn. Otherwise it could be failure as is evident by the previous TPKs. Um, it, it, every time I've TPK the party in the past three campaigns, it's precisely because we went from challenging encounters to every now and again, you get a deadly encounter and it's a deadly encounter that you can't handle. Um, but if you're just not careful about what it is you're doing, and in hindsight, you go, oh, fuck, I should have done this or I should have done that. It's like, It's Yeah, you got to be thinking about that stuff like each thing matters. So but. The. Actual like, I guess, set pieces of like where the encounters took place, I designed those encounters with those environs in mind and overall, I was fairly pleased with the way it went.
0: Yeah, no, I had a lot of fun. Uh, It almost felt like a a nice uh, reunion to combat heavy night Mm -hmm. where we kept going in and in. And usually when that happens, I usually end up at very little hit points where I do start to get a little worried about what's going on. But when I did get to half hit points, I was just like, all right, I might need to start worrying about how this is going. And you're like, oh, I fucked up those uh last two hits you they didn't happen you can get I, because your I back. didn't
1: um yeah I wasn't like looking closely I was like oh right yeah that's like I was just thinking that one attack hits then the other one goes but it's like yeah it's like the first attack has to hit in order to give the second attack even a chance to hit and it was like when I realized I was like oh I hit you with the second attack both times which neither mm-hmm. of them should have even been able to take place which is more in line with a monster of that challenge rating. And the same thing with when I asked the kind of question to you and Cody about the paratons, I was like, it seems this seems to be the intent, right? It would be crazy if like he got two attacks and each of them got an extra 2d8. That seems a little excessive. So there was a good mix of, of a variety, despite the fact that it was more or less just a kind of dungeon crawly session. It was, we started with a decent amount of, PC interaction. Then Mm -hmm. there was a role-playing encounter with a little crab guy. He got a little bit of history and a little bit of That was fucking awesome.
0: I got to say, I don't know if you came up with that or if that was in something that you read before, but that was the highlight of my night.
1: Well, there was a... In the original adventure, there is a big crab there. Um, Mm. But the kind of why he's there and what happened and what he says happened were my own invention. It was kind of the... To kick off the stakes and just, just as the original thing in the lighthouse is a big green, like beating heart. That's, that's what it is. Um, but what that is in this adventure is different. I just kind of retrofitted it and everything else. I just kind of scrapped out, but that was good. It was a good way to start PC interaction, role-playing then a little bit of like texture and travel along the causeway with a small encounter with the Grick for you know uh flavor to kind of let you know there's some danger then the harpy encounter was kind of a good like weird environment with monsters that were a little less straightforward rush in and attack they have these songs and they're trying to lure you off the cliff and then the party managed to kind of deal with that then there was a little bit of exploration actually not as much as i would have thought it seemed like it seemed like you guys Mm -hmm. were all curious about stuff but you were like okay i'm not gonna poke at anything (laughs) i'm just gonna gonna leave this be um you kind of like looked around but didn't really like do too much investigating so much as it was just like this isn't what we're looking for and you moved up then there was a little bit of attempt at a role-playing encounter with the ghost and then a fight uh that was I was pleased that the party didn't just go from oh he's hostile to like fighting like they did try their best and the roles just weren't there the the, uh-huh. the I mean Mike made a couple of decent intimidation checks but like you and Patrick and Cody all like doing persuasion and even Beto too like doing persuasion checks as full actions this is why I like having kind of a more flexible game I was like okay if you do a full action to persuade then I'm going to set your DC as such and then Mm. um, require a certain amount of successes, but you can still be having dialogue and be trying to persuade him even though you're attacking him um, or intimidate him, even though that you're attacking him. So I'll just set a different DC and a different threshold for successes and let the party know like, okay, you've been pretty persuasive while you were attacking him and you get the sense that now he's backing off. And then if the PCs continued the, the violence, then maybe that would have ruined it. But you know, you're all insightful enough and know enough about the situation to kind of size up, like, okay, maybe we can let off now, and he'll stop attacking us now that he knows we're a threat. We can go back from the from a combat encounter back to a role playing encounter, which hardly ever happens in D anD D, where you go from like yeah. role playing that erupts into combat and then and then backs off back into role playing. It's all just like, nope, this is it. Now we're fighting, and you're gonna we're gonna fight to the death. And I don't necessarily like that as much, but the roles weren't there. Then, uh, you know, we got up to the tower. I tried to set a little mood. There was a, um, there was a little bit of, uh, of a kind of light combat encounter with the paratons and, yeah. and all the things were kind of on theme. You guys didn't really pick at a lot of this, but like, I don't know if you know this in the lore of paratons, paratons, like eat, like, like humanoid hearts. It's like, it's like their primary, uh like delicacy it's like what they go for and so it was like
0: these are all new creatures to me i've never even heard of these things so it was kind of cool yeah it was like monsters that i didn't even know about
1: i I was just trying to think of okay what's a coastal monster that would likely roost on the top of this and then it was just like again thematic because it's like you know the thing up in the whatever is like a it's like a big thrumming heart Mm -hmm. uh So that was kind of cool. And we kind of ran up on time. So I just kind of left the last little like leg of the beacon as to like, how you're going to deal with that as like a soft cliffhanger. I was pretty pleased with the session and recovered nicely from the previous week. I felt.
0: Yeah. No, I had a ton of fun and I can't wait. You already told us that the lighthouse is going to be a milestone.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And uh, I'm really looking forward to level four uh, because the way that I have it now, and it's never come up yet. I'm waiting for the time that I'm going to be able to use it. Cause uh, my first feat at level one with my variant human feat, I took Observant, mm-hmm. uh, which gave me the those hor those amazing fucking scores of passives uh, mm-hmm. in investigation, perce- uh perception and uh, insight. Yeah. But also with Observant, you get I can read lips. As long as it's uh, a language I know, I can read lips. But the next one, I can't remember what the name of the feed is that I took, but it's another plus to my intelligence. And uh, I get eidetic memory. Oh, nice. Yeah, which I think will will come in handy. Oh, yeah. Because both you and I, we play with memory. We give roles. Sure. But I like to think that if I actually have a character with an eidetic memory, I might we might be able to play with that a little bit and have some
1: fun. Well, it's just uh it not yeah you could not only have fun with it but it is pertinent right so Mm -hmm. keep in mind though eidetic memory is not necessarily as far as i understand isn't isn't auditory so it's like just because like if someone tells you something you won't necessarily remember exactly what it is they said word for word but if you read it and you have eidetic memory then you could just read like, oh, I'll just recite this entire, like, what is on page 84 of this manuscript, the fourth paragraph? Like, what is the first sentence? And you just go like, the first sentence is this. And you just like, read it. Like, So that's super helpful, especially as an investigator who's probably going to be interacting with a lot of tomes and literature and letters and Mm. uh, all sorts of stuff like that. So, um, but, you know, reading lips and and having, you know, like really flawless memory could, um, be really beneficial to you, especially I, I could see ways where you could back end some, like even back into like a proficiency for instance, because, uh, certain things lend themselves to, if you study them and you, and you have your photographic memory, then, you're just better at them naturally. This is part of the reason Magnus Carlsen is such a good chess player because he has eidetic memory. He can. Mm-hmm. So it's like pretty much he can just pour chess stuff into his brain. Every possible board condition you could and he can just recall it perfectly. This is like when Bobby Fisher played Gary Kasparov in 1968, like the fourth game of their third set. He opened with this and it's like, I know what that looks like and I know how Fisher countered it. It's like, why couldn't a D&D player back end a dragon chest proficiency out of having that if you just studied a whole bunch of stuff? Yeah. It seems like a pretty easy way to get proficiency. And it's it, not that dragon chest is ever like a real important part of the game. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the party. Hitting a couple more uh, milestones here. Trying to get get into the, the heart of the adventure. There's a lot of intrigue. I, I it seems to me that the players are intrigued and, um, Patrick is being a little nit, or Cody is being a little nitpicky really. Um, but it shows that he's respecting the stakes of what's happening is, you mm-hmm. know, but he's, he's being a little naysayers or, well, how, well, how do we know that this, is, we're going to be able to find this stuff. It's like, and, but your response is perfect, which is, right man we don't really know what the timeline is here (laughs) yeah we know that the last adventure kicked off some sort of like domino effect and we don't really know what the time frame on that is and until we do know what the time frame on it i think maybe we should just go full throttle in whatever direction we are inclined to think will lead us to some sort of information or knowledge and then maybe we can let off the gas a little bit once we know we have a like she's doing this toward this end and this is why, and this is the time frame, and all that. Um, I love I, I that like, we
0: had that little interaction as well as the new guy came in and was pretty much said just, it was just like, Hey, we should take some time and think about this. And the rest of us were like, you weren't there. We were there know, and man. we watched this shit happen. Yeah. And now we have no idea what's going to happen. It could happen in an hour or it could happen in 5 days but we need all we know now is that we have to keep moving as much as it you know to our detriment we have to keep moving and it was kind of cool even seeing the dude that actually came into the game later that actually thought like well we might have some time not really you weren't there
1: but maybe you do i mean it is good yeah. i love that he, i love that he's asking these questions oh, but also totally. but also he I tried to frame this. I'm like, look, okay, so you're you're like a charisma-based character, but you're not trained in any charisma-based skills, and you're also uh-huh. not particularly insightful. So you might be, I kind of tried to frame this in his head. I'm like, you, you're you getting the sense that the, the party might not appreciate you kind of like telling everybody what to do, and you might not have a great level of self-awareness about the fact that you're not used to interacting with other people that don't just cow down to you because you're charismatic and but you're also more like a you're more like a bulldozer than you are like a you know steamroller or whatever like you just kind of run through <laughs> things and so you don't know how to smooth shit over you don't know how to like uh, be tactful you're just used to this kind of browbeating people and they're not really too keen on that i'm really surprised that no one said dude we just walked like an hour and a half here we had an hour time to travel and now you're bringing this up right when we get to the edge of the lighthouse like why didn't you mention this before we left (laughs) or while we were on the way here we could have been discussing this it's like only now did it occur to you he felt a fire under his ass because you were like okay let's go and i was like yeah let's go and then it was like he thought about it wait a minute like should we be going i don't know (laughs) Um, but some of the questions he raised are interesting ones like well oh yeah whatever this research is we're looking for has been in this boat for like a long time why are we convinced that it's even going to be useful to us don't know but
0: true that uh one other thing i wanted to bring up is um now that you've already said that this milestone is going to happen i want to bring up and talk about well Um, I want to say that the milestone system is so good right now because of this. And I want to go back to how we've talked about how XP is not exactly the greatest, uh, not even including like the bag full of rats or whatever you want to fucking call it. Cause like on my, um, my Wednesday group at work, we're doing an XP system, but it's like everybody gets the same every single week, pretty much. Uh, where with the milestone system right now how last time when we should have hit a milestone but we mm-hmm. failed we failed the we failed the adventure pretty much yeah and you were just like no it, it it can't happen now yeah now that we're hitting it and i know that because it's been easy enough that we will con- uh we will complete this lighthouse adventure yeah and we will hit Level four, God, it feels so fucking good. It feels so fucking good. Like we really achieved it. Because you were the last one. Yeah, it it feels so much better though. It like it was like, God damn it, we accomplished something and we're getting this reward, and it feels really fucking good because we failed last time. This one feels so much better. And I gotta I just want to bring out there that. The milestone system is so much better because of this and your players will, they will feel <clears throat> that bit of accomplishment so much better. I'm sure there's some people out there cause I've, I've known people that play video games with me that are the same way where they're just like, Oh, well, we just need to go and level, 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 level. And if I don't get it, then it's too hard. Like I don't like hard content, but When it's shit like this, goddamn it
1: feels good. It feels so good. Well, the way I try to think about a milestone is not like a thing that is sitting there waiting for you to go collect because that just feels like experience points. Really? It's all just in one bundle of experience Uh points and you just go and you pick up the, the, the milestone and you go like, yeah, I got the level and all I got to do is get it. Uh, Milestones. I break up into kind of like two categories. One, there are milestones that are necessary, meaning that the party if they endeavor to do them they're they just they're kind of a benchmark they're almost like an act break so the party will inevitably get to them because I've planned for them to get to them like if they follow the trail of what comes, they will get to it and so. It can also be fulfilling a kind of minor quest or a personal quest or whatever, a thing that allows you to get a thing, right? Like you hit this milestone because now you have the information you need to find the thing that you need to go to the place that you need to go. Major milestones are ones upon which the plot hinges. So one thing that I'm not building out too much of this adventure because The end of the last adventure, I was like, okay, so the party could succeed in, I I mean, I don't think you were going to kill the red woman. She's Mm. just too powerful, but you could have succeeded in recovering the orbs from her and possibly even recovering, um, the weird kind of scepter thing that she had. And in which case that would have taken the plot in a completely different direction. And, and I would have built out the adventure in a different direction. Now she still has goals. But she would have done different shit had you gotten the orbs and the and the scepter. She still would have had been a problem and you still would have had to like figure out what it was she was doing, but you would have had these things in hand and you would have it would have taken the plot in a different direction. And anytime something really would take the plot in one of two or even three directions, that should be a milestone. And if you there's one direction that is, a path to success then that's when you award the milestone but in this case it was like abject failure on the party's part yeah so there's oh, you no know, yeah. reason why you should have gotten a milestone and this one is probably more the lighthouse is more like a minor kind of milestone like it was here i most of the plot points since the beginning of this adventure have kind of led to this and so this was the first really opportunity for you to even gain a milestone. And unless you died, you weren't likely to fail. Um, But I, I, every, every adventure should probably have at least one juncture that could conceivably be a milestone that is success and equals milestone or failure. And the party needs to kind of like take the long way around to get a milestone. Uh, there's a milestone waiting for you, but when you get it, will depend on what direction the plot takes and the, so I built out kind of a rough sketch of what I wanted to happen. If you got the orbs and then what happened if you didn't get them and this is what's happening that you didn't get them, which means you needed to regroup. You needed to kind of get some more information and kind of ascertain all that stuff. And now you're going to get a level and it probably feels like a long time since you got one.
0: (laughs) It does. But I think that again, that's just makes it feel even sweeter but I'm I'm wondering because you said, you know, you, you told us like after the, the ordeal with the red woman, you're like, that would have been a milestone. And all of us were just kind of like fucking damn it. You know, that could have been it. That could have been it. And then we worked more and more and it's only been a couple sessions since then. But you said, you know, the other day, you're just like, all right, this is going to be the milestone. As soon as you leave here, you're going to be all good. And I, all I could think of was just like, fuck yes, fuck yes. I got so excited for it. And it makes me think again, back on every other game that I'm going to be running is the milestone system is so good like that, but it makes me think I like, should I tell them like this could be a milestone? If we hit here, it's going to be a milestone. And if you, you know, if you fail, then, we have to continue on because I think because you told us that that the red woman encounter could have been a milestone and we didn't hit it and we had to work harder and made that so much sweeter.
1: Yeah. At the end. Uh, yeah, I was. Well, if you recall and, and you said it's only been a few sessions, if you really think about it, there was the epilogue to the defeat of the red woman and the prelude to this adventure and then kind of the. One, two, three. It's been probably like five sessions, maybe six um, since you guys last leveled. If you recall, the the milestone that you hit before you went to encounter the red woman was only a few sessions because it was just kind of as you're getting down to the last acts of the adventure, the pacing picks up. And so like you had gotten a milestone for, I believe, the last of the encounter with the coattle, I think, or maybe right before that oh Um, yeah and so it was only like three sessions between the time that you hit level three because you hit level two after you did the crack maw hideout and Mm -hmm. then level three i think came five or six sessions after that and then there was only maybe like three sessions between that and the time when you encountered the red woman you could conceivably have could have hit level four but instead of that then there was like those two or three sessions. And then these like five sessions, it's been like, since you leveled, it's been eight or nine sessions. And so that's when you're low level, when you're, when you're level six or seven or eight, like that's about how long it should be taking probably about 10 sessions. Um, but when you're going from three to four, it's like you expect to level every four sessions, five sessions, maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a, I was on of two minds about whether to tell you, that it would be, but I I suspect that if you're doing your storytelling, right, that the players likely know what's going to be a milestone and maybe they don't, maybe that would actually be better where they would be like, Oh, we're going to get a level. Like I wasn't even thinking about it. I was just kind of wrapped up in the story and getting the objectives and things that's better, right? Where it's like, they weren't even thinking in terms of like, when are we going to get a level? so much as like we got to do this thing we got to get it and like to push the story forward but at the end of an adventure when you're coming down to the end of a big bad you don't think the party is already primed to just think yeah if we we win we're gonna we're gonna get the get the milestone i would suspect they would be yeah i don't know
0: maybe maybe it's because you made it vocal that you Mm -hmm. said oh that would have been a milestone that maybe if you had said nothing It might not have been such a big hit, but because you were just like, "Oh yeah, that would have been a milestone," but you know, we're it'll hit, it'll hit real soon.
1: The reason I told you was because the way, because of how hard she is. I mean, she's kind of like you know, she's a big tough bad guy, and so you're you're having contact with her at a time that shouldn't really be safe to you. Um, and if if she didn't have reasons for not killing you, then. That's it would be like dropping an adult dragon on you at level two or three. It's like, well, you're probably just going to die. Um, but. If I hadn't told you, it could have been a milestone, meaning that there was some win condition that you did get close to, but. I suspect the party would have just felt like, oh, well, we weren't I think you even asked me it's like, well, we weren't just gonna, we weren't going to win at all. Like there was just there was no way there was no way for us to win that encounter. So, you know there were ways for you to win. You just really went about it all wrong. Patrick kind of tried, um, to do what was would have been necessary to kind of abscond with the orbs. But he was really the only one doing that, and he even made a joke about it. Like, yeah, the coattail did warn you. Like, don't fuck with her, right? Don't fuck yeah. with her. Like, you got you got something to do. Keep your eye on the ball. Like, get what you got to get and get the fuck out of there. Don't, don't tiptoe around it. And then, yep, sure enough. It was like, things got like, she tried to talk to you. You guys got hostile immediately. And she was like, Oh, okay. I see how it is. (laughs) I'm just going to fuck you up now. And so that is, I didn't want the party to come away feeling like, well, there's nothing we could have done. It was just like a plot point. It was like, we were kind of railroaded into that. It's like, no, you just, you did kind of play your cards wrong a little bit. And and there needed to be some reprisal, which is, you know, the party is now kind of like learning um, kind of how to go about doing things and being more deliberate, which is what Cody was alluding to. Um, so, yeah, there could have been a milestone. It's just a way of communicating that there are consequences and there is an A or B path here and you didn't get the one that was the, the success.
0: Well, before we get into a little bit more here, I wanted to bring up, just because I got to say how fucking good it is. I am not the biggest fan of what Wizards puts out in uh, adventure format, Hmm. but recently, and I've made it very uh, apparent on this show how much I love Lost Mine of Phandelver. I think Hmm. it is one of the greatest pieces of writing and adventure creation that Wizards has done in a very very long time. And being that it is the starter adventure, it's fucking gold, it's perfection. And recently, uh, my buddy Jeff that is a part of my Wednesday uh my Wednesday work group, he bought uh Lost Man of Delver and the Shattered Obelisk book. Mm-hmm. And he let me borrow it and read it. Oh, my god, dude. 9.3 out of 10. This thing is fucking fantastic. So um, it's the usual Vandelver book. The first three, four chapters are regular Vandelver with little minute changes in order for uh, the things in the future. But then it goes level one to four for Lost Mine of Fandelver, and then level four to 12 for the Shattered Obelisk. And the Shattered Obelisk portion, fucking awesome. I never saw people work with psionics, with mind flares and all this other shit as good as they have done it in this book. And I think I'm going to go ahead, and the first time in a very long time, that I'm going to give Wizards some of my money, and I'm going to buy this book. And I'm going to share it with you, Dave, because I think you would really enjoy this as well. And you're going to run it when you come out here to visit. I probably will because it is that good. It's Mm -hmm. actually very good. Uh, I just want to put out there for anybody listening. If you are hesitant, do not hesitate. This is a great book. If you are planning on starting your very first campaign, this this is an amazing place to start because you have... Lost Mine of Phandelver, which is both Dave and I have attested to the greatest starter set you can you can go with. And then it leads right into this amazing story that goes right on into level 12. Do it. Just go for it. You're going to buy the hard copy or you're going to buy the
1: PDF? No, I will. I don't think I'm going to buy the hard copy. I will buy the PDF. See, I think it's bullshit. Like they should give you a fucking free PDF if you're going to buy a hard copy
0: i hear you dude i wish they would otherwise i would just go buy the hard copy like jeff bought the the collector's edition uh hard copy the book and it is a beautiful book but it's just like eh, no i'll just buy the pdf on DD beyond or whatever actually i'll probably just get in
1: foundry so i can run it online when i want to yeah they should just give you like i you know i buy vinyl every now and again and sometimes you'll just buy a vinyl like record and you'll open it up and they'll be like man you can have like a free digital copy of this album yeah, too a free just mp3 code. right yep so, yeah it should be i mean you're buying the like physical thing so that what's the harm it's not like they're it's not like there's a fixed quantity of pdfs they can fucking produce they're oh, flying dude. off the shelves and we have to like re- you know reproduce them or something it's like basically free for them
0: you know 90 percent of what i buy now with my indie uh rpgs they all come with free pdfs they if you buy the hard copy they all come with free pdfs I don't think it, but anyway, yeah was Wiz- you know hasbro's going through some shit right now so we won't hold anyway. it against them too bad you fucking dickheads
1: i mean good is good but i guess i don't want to nitpick
0: it's true it is it's so good though god damn it and i told jeff i was gonna punch him in the face because now i gotta give wizard some of my money Yeah. i didn't want to but i'm going to because it's that fucking good
1: if they've earned it, then I'm all for that.
0: Yeah. Oh, they earned it. This is some. Oh my God, for original writing. Because I don't count Planescape, I don't count um, Curse of Strahd, I don't count uh, Tales from, uh, or even like Tomb of Tomb of Annihilation, because this is all from old adventures that they just added on to, sure, right? Sure. Uh, shattered obelisk is completely original and completely Mm -hmm. new and it blew me away i thought it was fantastic uh they haven't made any real original stuff since like back in um jesus i can't even think yeah there you go uh or even like after the tms stuff or yeah just a little bit after that like it's been years and years and years since they've done original stuff So when I saw this, I was blown away. I was like, this is fan-fucking-tastic. And I hope that whoever wrote this, they keep them on for a while because it's really good. Yeah, I'm into it. But I wanted to bring up that in our last session, there was a point when we were playing, because encounters kept happening, Uh, combat encounters, I will make sure to say, it was combat encounters, that uh, we were playing on Roll20 and David has a limited jukebox at the moment. Yeah, He might add more later, probably after our last session, he might, but there was a time where he was just like, this music doesn't sound right. It's not the feel that I want. This is, I, we want something like this. And we all feel this way in different sessions that the atmosphere needs to be correct. And it might not always be music, but I wanted to bring up how to make atmosphere feel good at the table. This could be analog. It could be digital. There's many different ways to do so. David actually did amazing job back in the day when it came to atmosphere. I think it was, we were still playing D and D second edition or it was just a D and D back then when we started playing music, but it wasn't until we started playing vampire that you started really boosting the atmosphere and uh I wanted to talk about back then because I didn't even think of this music I was just like fuck yeah here we go we got a soundtrack going on you know get some Ozzy Osbourne going on we got this shit but as soon as we started playing Vampire you started doing a little bit more instrumental industrial the lighting needed to be correct and I wanted to know what was your thoughts back then when we started doing that
1: Well, VTM is a much more atmospheric game than Dungeons & Dragons, uh, mostly because it's not as action-oriented. So mood and texture count for a lot, uh, in the same way that having well-developed characters is much more important in VTM. So the one thing that that game does is it sharpens these skills for other games like D and D or something that might not be as it might not be as important to set the mood, but mood is something that often gets ignored uh, at a table. You already touched on a few different kind of obvious ways that you can Alter the mood. So I'm a fan, like, if you're not playing music at your game, you probably should be playing music at your game. I think that would much would be obvious. Mm. So let's take it a a step further. You want to try to have music that fits a variety of different circumstances so that the players can feel immersed. This is the thing in VTM where you're having largely role-playing encounters And in a variety of different scenes, I mean, it's it's set up more like a film, VTM is. So you have different scenes. And so you think in terms of somebody who's like a playwright almost, okay? Where, what is the plot point I want to have happen? What is the general mood and tenor of that? Which characters have a stake in this scene? And then you go, where should the scene take place? That's most appropriate to its mood. d d is much more like action oriented and plot oriented. So the mm-hmm. scenes will take place where the adventure takes them and you aren't really designing the, the, uh, narrative or the conflict in a, in a more, uh, artistic way for lack of a better word. It's much more focused on the plot. And so in VTM in particular, you would, at least when I did it, I would just have like a bunch of scenes and and they, they would have like information and characters and and take place in a certain setting, but they don't necessarily need to happen linearly. They they don't need to be like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. They're like the players kind of pick at different elements and it's much more sandboxy, and they can kind of just discover different things and piece stuff together, especially if it's got like more mystery to it. So but music is very much important to setting the mood of any game. And so what I typically like to do is for d and I like to have a few different playlists that kind of cover the broad categories of types of scenes, right? So obviously you need some sort of battle music, but you want to have enough of a playlist that's available to you that you're not just playing the same battle song over and over and over again. This is the problem I've been having is that there's three or four songs that are like tracks or whatever that are just good for battle they're upbeat they're fast paced they're aggressive and you go okay that's great Um, before when I had like a CD player or whatever I could just use I think Spotify or whatever to build a playlist Mm -hmm. you have a much more deliberate way of going about that Um, but you also might want to have a playlist that kind of encapsulates when the party is in the tavern or having social interactions something that's lighthearted. Um, perhaps even as a subset of that, like a a tavern interaction is different than like a negotiation, right? Or something that might be a dramatic social interaction. Then there's likely to be some sort of travel wilderness kind of things. Even just those three broad categories are important to have. Um, anything that you have to add on the whole like music front that's usually the way i try to frame it is just like a few broad categories that it just makes it easy the party is traveling on a boat i click a travel track and, and then kind of start talking with some narration over it or whatever
0: so i've been a part of some groups uh that some people try to play some music that was they wanted the atmosphere to be there all i gotta say is please don't play music that has lyrics <laughs> yeah. because people that are a little neurodivergent like myself, I start focusing on the lyrics yeah. than what my GM is saying. So try to stay with instrumental as yeah, much or, as possible.
1: Or just at the very least choose something that's thematically appropriate, right? You're playing D right. try to try to stick with things that are in the fantasy genre. And there's a, a plethora of composers who do this for films right so you know something that's like lord of the rings conan the barbarian harry potter probably going to be very very strong and then even some mm-hmm. things that are like fantasy that might um that might kind of be adjacent maybe something like spider-man might even like suit the mood try to stay away from things that are too iconic uh if they're too iconic, you know, the Braveheart soundtrack, probably not super well known, but if like if if some big monster bursts through the door and, and the party hears <laughs> it immediately takes you out because you're so like, oh, fucking Jurassic Park theme, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like you know, so Superman, Jurassic Park, try not to choose things that are super iconic. Go go with like fantasy video games or fantasy movies that are maybe not super duper iconic. Yeah. And you can, especially video
0: game OSTs really good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, but as, as a broad categories is good for music. Some of the other obvious things that probably come to most people's minds are like minis. Uh, if you're playing analog Mm -hmm. or you're, um, not playing analog, like if you're playing on a digital tabletop, try to be thoughtful about what sort of tokens or what sort of minis or what sort of, um, environments that you're using those set the tone in a different way even if you're just playing on a virtual tabletop and you have tokens that are kind of like cute and cartoonish and they look like the little like you know just like hand-drawn sketches that sets a different mood than ones that are more photorealistic or ones that are like you know dark and edgy if you're playing you know if you're if you're playing vampire the masquerade online and all the players have digital avatars four of them have digital avatars that look like a like a drawing on an ann rice book and then one has one of count chocula like (laughs) that's gonna just like you know and if they all have ones that look like count chocula or something or the little vampire chick from adventure time that that's a very different mood than like an ann rice kind of thing you know so Try to just think about the, how you visualize those things. And the environments too is similar. If you have a digital tabletop, what is the, what does the map look like? Does it look like kind of like a hand drawn map or is it really well realized? Are you using light sources? Do those light sources dim at the edges? Do they like Roll20 has this thing where it can like flicker even like a torch? Yeah, that, that yes, was gonna, gonna be really one
0: cool. that I brought up. Like uh, what I use Foundry, Foundry is very good at creating atmosphere on their virtual tabletop. Cause you can add fog or you can add weather effects, you can add mm-hmm. all of these l- different lights and they can be different colors. It's it is it's really good. You can make a real good effect on the tabletop. Uh sorry, I didn't mean to take away from you there. Keep going.
1: No, no, no. I was that that's like I I suspect things like minis and environments often the first thing that comes to your mind is if you're playing in person and that's not necessarily true. You can still set the mood on a screen. It probably is easier in person. I mean, since I was talking about dynamic lighting, this is something that I got hip to when we were playing VTM is lighting is important. You know uh, if you know, VTM, you pretty much they tell you play by candlelight. That's the way you should be doing it Um, because it just sets a very different mood than if you have like very bright lights and so yeah um, which
0: we did for a very long time we did uh candlelight for a very long time yeah. and then we did black light for a little while yeah which completely changed it changed the atmosphere quite a bit actually
1: yeah it made it feel more uh kind of like nightclub or something
0: it did um, and i think we went back to candlelight
1: afterwards yeah yeah and so um but as a general rule if you're playing in you know, in person and you're trying to set the atmosphere, just, it it helps to have a a designated place that doesn't have distractions, that doesn't have pets that is set up in a way that just kind of is comfortable. Um, on a similar front to, uh, perhaps another one that was fairly obvious is, uh, making use of handouts, especially in person. uh, Um, mm -hmm. if, if a player can like interact with something like that's tactile, And it Mm -hmm. it feels more important to the plot if it's a letter, if it's a uh, whatever. And failing that, try to make on a digital tabletop, make liberal use of trying to cement in the player's minds like a handout of like what a monster looks like or what, you know, an item looks like or what uh, like a, a landscape looks like. This is often missed. You can import images into Roll20, into Foundry and show show them to the players when you describe some sort of like vista point or you describe some sort of landscape or some sort of gates or castles. This all helps build the texture of the world and their different tones for different things. If you have an aesthetic in mind, try to make sure that you're evoking the same aesthetic in your minds of your PCs as you intend to. And so Do you have any other obvious ones before I move on to a few less obvious ones?
0: Well, when you were talking about handouts, one thing I wanted to talk about is uh, especially if you're doing like Call of Cthulhu is a big one because there's a lot of handouts with Call of Cthulhu. If you want to go above and beyond, let them know that this is newsprint and you can print stuff on newsprint or let them know that this is vellum, you know, Hmm. whatever it's printed on. This is vellum. And I, you know, you try to make it that whatever you give them, this is what it feels like. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about tactile, a lot of things come from actual feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's another big one. That's the only thing that I want to bring up when you're talking about actual tactile things. Yeah. Is that the actual feel that you can bring to the table brings out a lot into the actual story itself.
1: Yeah. If you're sitting at a table with someone, I, I used to do this, you know, draw a map, draw a, like a, a dungeon map that the part that I want to give to the party is a handout and I'll draw it on graph paper and then I will copy it onto some sort of like thicker, almost mm-hmm. cardstock. That's maybe like a parchment or like off white color. And then I would like, you know, tear the edges of it and like crumple it up so that it like feels. Almost oh, like yeah cloth and then you know maybe even burn it with like a like a cigarette or yep. something around me i edges. was just
0: talking to our buddy nate earlier big nate oh he's uh, he used to that. do that too yeah. he would draw the shit out by hand soak it in coffee bake it crumple it up so that it would get super soft burn the edges he wanted to make it feel as authentic as possible
1: yeah because you feel it puts you more in the mindset of uh character Right. And yeah. so you don't want to inundate players with too many handouts and too many things that like distract, like try to save it for the things that feel important. The party gets a treasure map. That is a cool thing. And even in recent years, the as much as I, you know, I'm on the jack about not like spending extra money for shit. Certain things are are iconic things in like a certain campaign setting. So like Wizards makes an actual Taroka deck that you can buy. And they also make an actual deck of many things. Many things, yeah. And it's like those things probably, like if they're in your campaign, you probably should have like a physical thing that is those things. Um, I did. I printed out the deck of many things and I made the cards. I remember. I remember. And this was before they had the actual like deck and the book and everything that came with like adventure ideas and, you know, cash grab to cash in on it um but yeah that you know we have the when we were playing curse of Strahd in person we had the taroka deck like the actual cards and everything and it it does just kind of make the game come a little bit more uh, alive if they're a significant thing don't give them a handout for every bobble that they get uh, or every note that someone is so he leaves you a post it on your on your motorcycle or whatever like here it is you know it's like, yeah you don't need that right um but if it's Anything that helps increase the immersion. And there's a few other things I have here at the tail end that are maybe a little less obvious, kind of save them for the back end here. Um, so if you're trying to set a mood, you need to be more cognizant of what words you're using to describe stuff and how much description you're using. So, um, as I already alluded to for significant things, try to use evocative language and describe them accordingly. If you have kind of a very travel oriented travel forward in a foreign environments, kind of fantastic whimsical world setting, then when the party comes across a new landscape or a new environment or a new thing, Describe it in great detail in a way that is is fantastic or whimsical or gritty and dark, depending on what your tone is. And, and similarly, if your campaign and you want to set a tone for an action sequence or you want to set a tone for a fight, a chase, try to be using language and cadence that goes along with that. So like the general tone of the party strolling into say a throne room to convince, uh, a baron of something like happened. If you noticed, if you recall back when that scene came upon you, I slowed down kind of what I was like the cadence of my speech. And I described things in a, in a deliberate detailed way because i wanted to to really orient you in space and give you this sense that you're in this grand hall and 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 there in the the encounter before you was kind of pregnant with anticipation and 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 that set a certain mood and i the the players accordingly kind of assimilated into that mood and when i'm having a fast paced chase or a fight i use short fast staccato sentences that have strong verbs that are like you know very evocative of of something violent or something exciting and you can do this all up and down with differing tones if you want something to be comedic um use funny language you can even just if you're not great with words and you're not great with coming up with descriptions on the fly i think i've suggested this before just come up with words that sound like they're on brand so to speak. Um, Certain words sound funny <laughs> certain words mm-hmm. sound harsh and certain words sound dark, right? Macabre is a dark word, right? It just sounds dark. And so just have a whole list of words and just, you know, make sure you know what they mean, obviously. <laughs> um, and then try to weave them into scenes that like suit, whatever your tone is and if your whole campaign has a a very similar tone and you're always trying to set the same mood and tone then that's all the better you could just come up with a variety of different words and think in terms of uh if something is highly descriptive then what are some of the nouns that would be thematic and and set the tone and if something is about role-playing think in terms of adjectives, like what, how can you describe a person And or, but if it's action oriented, then think of verbs because verbs are the action part of the sentence. So I know maybe this seems a little like, uh, like homework, like linguistic homework, but it's, it's really not that difficult. Um, you just try to try to think of what the tone is that you're affecting and accordingly, um, have your descriptions mirror that. And so, Uh, Anything to add to that bullet point there, Matt?
0: So I want to bring up a a perfect example in in our last session, actually, our D&D game with the crab, the giant crab that he's a lord. He is a noble. And the way that you played him was absolutely fucking perfect, because every time you talked about it is like he wanted to, you know, you talked about how he made a motion like he wanted to shake my hand. But he said, "Uh, but I'm unfortunately unavailable to do so as he would bring his claws backwards away from my hand as well as every time that he tried to make uh, a noble gesture but his mandibles and his mouth were in- unable to do so <laughs> you can see that they were fumbling at the same time trying to make this happen that's really good uh, articulation as well as a very good storytelling to make it happen. Uh, but I want to make also physically bring the atmosphere to the table. David has also done an amazing job back in the day, always going back to VTM because I think VTM, we all hit our like theatrical like height. Yeah. But of course, that was also like back when we played in person a lot. Uh, David always made, he made, If you were if anybody out there like I am a theater major, if anybody out there is a theater major, he made use of the room. He would always stand up and he would walk to the opposite sides of the room. He would walk to the players and he'd make sure that whatever he was delivering was going to hit at that point where he was at. And no, no GM is glued to the screen. Mm -hmm. There's no reason for you to stay in that seat. You can always get up and make yourself, you know, make your voice bigger or make it that you are off in a corner and seem more skittish, that's a great way to bring in atmosphere. And that's a great way to show what your character is doing, Uh, especially when it is analog at the table. Movement is huge. It's real huge. Fucking my Donald Trump and it's huge, huge... (laughs) because that is like is is if you the more you are able to move the better uh but that's it because i think you did everything else i think you talked about everything else other than the movement i love the movement that you did back in those days
1: yeah i'm glad you brought that up actually because it segues into kind of my next uh not my last one but my my next point i wanted to make Mm -hmm. um there, there is a caution to too much movement. You don't want the players to feel antsy and maybe you do. And if you do, then yeah, moving around a lot, but independent of that, this is maybe less easy to do if you're just playing with audio online. But if you have, um, at least if someone can see you and you're in particular for role playing purposes, like if you're in a role playing encounter, but even, even like during a battle or whatever, you can set the mood by almost like acting out with your body language, what someone is doing, especially like, I do this a lot in person. Like if I'm trying to illustrate, like, you know, someone like, you know, gets their arm up like this and it kind of, you know, like I, I kind of tend to kind of act it out. That sets Mm. the mood pretty well, but I mean, it need not be something as dramatic as like, you know how someone holds up their shield or thrusts over with their sword or whatever. It could just be if you're speaking as like a powerful character, you are doing a couple of things: mirroring their body language and using their tone, and possibly even doing like a different voice. Uh, in particular, voices are great for comedic effect, um, but they can also—I I don't mean necessarily going like, "Yeah, you like how you doing, bro?" You know. Cause right. Mm -hmm. That's like, I'm trying to wonder if we can go up into the tavern. Yeah. You know, that's, that's fun that you don't want to do that for a character. You might need to be speaking as for more than like a couple of paragraphs because it gets kind of hard to keep up, especially if you're not great at voices. Um, but those lighten the mood, but I mean, even just mirroring someone's cadence and the deliberation with which they speak, trying to think how would this person speak? Um, Are they hitting certain words? And when they do so, what's their body language like? You know, someone that's meek might actually like, you know, be kind of like shriveled onto themselves like this. I know the viewers can't see me, but, you know, or, you know, someone that is that is powerful might speak slowly and deliberately and might move very little with just like their hands in front of their face and that whole Mm -hmm. like pyramid of power kind of like whatever.
0: You know, that brings up a great thing because my character that i'm playing in our D D campaign he's a noble he's an intellectual he's a guy that thinks about his words before he says it and i try to bring that out in our play that i do pauses before a lot of the things that i say and i try to get that through i don't know if it always comes through but mm-hmm. even when it comes it, it's not only just the dm or the player, you know, it's not always the GM DM that puts
1: on the, you know, that makes the atmosphere. The players can do it as well. Yeah, but it's, it starts with the GM, and, and that would it becomes infectious if you're setting the tone and mood. Mm-hmm. Your players generally will follow along. Like even Mike, Mike is notorious for not playing along with the mood, and he always just kind of prefers to be silly. Yeah. Um. Uh-huh. But even even when he's silly about certain things, it's still an acknowledgement that he's like internalized. Like we're playing curse of Strahd and I'm like talking about like these grim and dark things. And he always just kind of has like some cheeky, like whatever, like he doesn't really, you know, I I think he thinks that the whole like getting into character and everything like is, is this kind of stupid and silly, like whatever, but, but he, he does kind of gravitate toward like, well, what kind of character am I? And like, you know, uh, we had this interlude at the, in the, in the curse of strad game where i was talking about um i think he had like some flash or some memory of back when he was a soldier and and you know he made some like kind of lighthearted comment about it but i i, I could tell he was kind of like that was pretty cool like, <laughs> like it was pretty grim and dark and uh generally the players will follow along and so if you're assuming the body language and cadence of voice, even if you're not doing a a voice per se, you know, that you just try to speak as someone else and think, how would they speak differently than a regular person Would they use different words? Would they, and that's all going to be like how you've populated the scene. And hopefully the characters that populate a scene should be, on brand as far as the mood goes you if you want a serious and dark um brooding atmosphere then you know don't throw like a court jester in there whose whole mo is to like be a buffoon that is just really not on tone and how are you going to communicate that with um something that is is isn't like buffoonery and Chris course does this well when you look at the things that are like supposed to be kind of lighthearted in the world like children's toys and they just make them really fucking macabre and like Mm. and so it almost has like the opposite like it's it's so on brand with the tone of the adventure but the, the tone of the thing itself a child's toy should be fun and and it should be um you know kind of playful and and jubilant and and they're not they're like these really maudlin dark things and communicates like these are things for children in this world (laughs) like man this is like a this is a fucked up world man like kids this is what passes for fun for a child in this Mm -hmm. world and so those things uh add up and and it plays into my final way in which you can build mood um which is if you're coming up with some sort of homebrew or um presumably, even if it's a published thing, at some point, you're going to have to name things, people, places, objects. And so it's a real missed opportunity to not name those people's places and objects, things that's, that bolster a certain type of mood. Uh, again, it's uh, just depending on what your, your character's names are sets a certain tone again to my point with the the count chocula icon it's like you know oh right also i am uh quentin de and you know it's like i am you know Cermac of the veil and it's like yeah yeah I'm, i'm i'm conan big dick energy of the fucking uh you know samaria that's how i roll right it's like okay that's the gm should be naming things whether they're volcanoes whether they're cities whether they're people or objects in a way that is on brand and, and failing that, try to make them, I I probably err too much on the side of just naming things, really generic things um, precisely because I don't necessarily want to set the tone with those things, but sometimes really straightforward, you know, generic sounding things actually serve your purpose better. It's like, what was the name of the monks that were, you know, studying the stars. I'm like, they're just called the Brotherhood of the Stars. Yeah. Like that's they're not uh creative types, you know. <laughs> they're researchers. They <laughs> just go like that's that's what we that's what we're called, you know. Um, you know, but there's a big difference between uh you know, something that just that sounds, you know, well, what's the name of the town? We're g-? it's 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 Igoli Bottom, you know. Iggly bottom is the name of the town versus Like, you know, it's Dragonport. It's like, well, that certainly sounds different. Certain things communicate certain, um, you know, Moria, right? You know, Mount Doom. These things sound more ominous than the Shire, right? (laughs) Doesn't the Shire just (laughs) sound like a nice place? I mean, you can't really put your finger on why it sounds nice, but it does. And so try to think in terms of, what you're naming people, things, and places and whether they serve the mood. If they're, you know uh actually leaf through um the the wizards adventure Strixhaven is a good meditation on this. The Strixhaven is like deep like the guys at Watsy were just like we need to get that Harry Potter demographic. Mm-hmm. We need to get the people that really love fucking Harry Potter to play D and D. And it's like, there is from what I can tell, no allusions to Harry Potter and there's no Harry Potter stuff in there, but it feels like Harry Potter. And part of it is because the way in which the, the way in which they describe things to my earlier point and the way in which they name things, not just in the concepts, but the naming conventions, they kind of mirror um, J.K. Rowling's world a lot. And they they clearly had a pretty deep understanding of like what was happening like linguistically. And, and also like when you visualize something, it just, it feels like a Harry Potter world. And so they wanted to capture that di- demographic. And as much as it's not my jam, I would venture to guess they've been pretty successful in that endeavor.
0: Hell yeah. And uh, I want to end on a nice little example that David did a long, long time ago, we were playing Hackmaster when it first came out. And for anybody that knows Hackmaster out there, it came from a a, a comic comic strip really comic yeah. book comic, comic strip. It meant to be it was supposed to be comical, no matter what everything in the book meant to be comical. But we played it kind of straight as far as we could all the way through until we encountered a Naga. For those that don't know, nagas are gigantic, uh, serpentine-like creatures that usually don't really deal with shit very well. When adventurers show up with weapons and want to destroy you, they don't deal very well. David had a naga that uh, came into view that said, I highly advise you all to leave We're not going to leave. We're going to fuck the shit out of you. We are just (laughs) going to draw our weapons and stick you with them as much as we can. This is ill-advised. I highly advise you all to just leave now. Well, we think that our odds are very good. And then the Naga showed up as with his tail, pushed a bowler hat forward and put a cigar in his mouth and said, I will take those odds. Let's put them on the table. And it made it so good. So fucking good. And it just shows you that a little bit of humor, a little bit of this, a little bit of that can make your fucking, your adventures so good. Uh, And we want to know what you think. Uh, What are some of the, uh, what's some of the shit that you use to bring atmosphere to your table? Let us know at InsideTheGMStudio at gmail.com. Right in. Let us know, or come in and check us out on our Twitch stream, uh, Twitch TV slash Inside the GM Studio at nine o'clock Sunday, nine p.m. Eastern. But for this week, I've been your host Matt, and I am David. Oh fuck! Good night.